Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sound of London. This is Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and I'm going to start this week's episode by doing something that I don't normally feel any compulsion to do, which is justify the subject matter we're going to be talking about jack the ripper and i didn't realize it until the prospect of this episode came up but i do have an anti-jack the ripper policy (laughs) which i don't mean uh i don't invite him into my home but i mean to say that i'm just really not interested years and years ago we did a a piece about Whitechapel, and he was mentioned then amongst uh, things to do with the craze and the siege of sydney street and i wasn't interested then and it felt kind of salacious and gratuitous and not something i I wanted on the show so very recently when a public relations agency that we do a lot of work with and they suggest a lot of great guests um who've been really popular on the show and shown us really new and interesting things suggested to us uh, one of their clients who has written a book in which he claims to have unmasked Jack the Ripper and named him. They suggested he should appear on the show and I thought well maybe I'm being daft about this let's get him on. That's how the interview with Russell Edwards came about. He's a lovely guy, he's warm, soft-spoken, very generous. I had a hold all with me full of copies of novels for a talk I'm doing and he was my caddy. He hoiked them around for me whilst talking about his subject so that I have my hands free for the sound equipment. The reason for this unusual intro though is because after I'd interviewed him something kind of strange happened and it's not something that I've experienced I think with any other guest that I've had. We spent the episode talking naturally enough about the crimes of Jack the Ripper about the identity of the killer. I had the very vaguest discomfort talking to Russell, um, and it's the same discomfort I feel whenever I talk to somebody who's used to delivering information in a particular way, because sometimes you just a little bit feel like they've forgotten you're there and that they're delivering their monologue. That's pretty normal doing the kind of work that I do to meet people like that, so I didn't really give it too much thought. Afterwards, though, questions started to mount. And I mean a lot of questions. So what I'm going to do very unusually this week, I'm going to play you the show just as it would have been for any other guest. We meet, we talk, I learn, hopefully. I try to be a good foil for somebody who knows a lot more about a subject than I do. And I try and winkle out more unknowns about London. It's a longish episode anyway, it's about 50 minutes. And when the 50 minutes are up, I'll come back on and I'll explain why I had a really bad night's sleep that night and what was troubling me and what I then did about it. 
And after that, for this episode, there's a part two that follows on immediately, in which my guest and I have to have a second meeting in order to thrash things out. So let's go to part one. We're off to the east end of London to meet a man who is certain that he has unmasked Jack the Ripper. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before, just a strong throw from your front door. find me with author and entrepreneur and historical researcher and uh, investigator of all things Jack the Ripper, Russell Edwards. We're standing on the corner of Bell Lane and Wentworth Street, which if you know the East End well, you'll know is absolutely covered in market. And we're looking at some very uh, fine fashion indeed. Russell, hi. Hi there. Hi, Quentin. Uh, your book, Naming Jack the Ripper, does exactly what it says on the tin. Maybe we should just get this out of the way early on. Can you just whisper in my ear who Jack the Ripper was, please? Oh, really? Oh, wow. Well. Okay, well, that's all for this week. <laughs> should we actually... Yeah, we should name him. Lots of people were in the, the frame, I know. I, I feel like I've heard about every two or three years somebody say definitively that they know who Jack the Ripper was. And then a few years later, somebody else says the same thing. Who was Jack the Ripper? Jack the Ripper was a Polish Jewish immigrant by the name of Aaron Kosminski. Um, at the time of the murders, he was only 23. He came over to live in the East End in 1881. He was named by the head of CID as the suspect um, right back at the time of the murders. Um, now, the differences between my story and everybody else's his mind's based on forensic science. Yes, we need to know who you are as well, uh, maybe first. Yeah. OK, hi, I'm Russell, uh, Russell Edwards. Um, I spent 15 years uh, researching this story and four years of those in the labs um, and in, also in the archives with a very gifted forensic scientist by the name of Dr Yari Lohalainen. Um, without Yari, we wouldn't be here. Um, he's very ingenious and the way that he worked actually got us to name definitively who Jack the Ripper is and was and always has been. It was his work on the shawl that I bought from um, an auction back in 2007 that got us to where we are today. That shawl was um, taken from the fourth murder scene, um, that of Catherine Eddowes, on the night of the 29th of September 1888, going into the early hours of the 30th. It was taken by an acting sergeant who was there at the scene and he asked if he could take the shawl for his wife, who was a seamstress. His wife didn't want it, so they passed it to his niece, who then passed it down the family line and I bought it from his great-great-grandnephew, um, a very fine gentleman by the name of um, David Melville Hayes. Um, it was from there that really the story started. And, and who, I mean, it runs the risk of being a rude question, but who were you at the point that you bought the shawl? Yes, I've always been um, a property um, entrepreneur. Um, at the time, I, ha I owned three care homes. Um, I had a portfolio of property in, in London, so Chelsea, Canary Wharf, here in Whitechapel. Um, so really, when I bought the shawl, I had no knowledge at the time of true forensic science, genealogy work, 
or really proper primary research into this story. And so you bought the shawl for what reason? Ah, that's a really good question. The, the shawl... Um, you know, when I bought it, I just thought, well, it could be something. It could be family tradition or legend, and wouldn't be nothing more significant than that. Um, what I did discover, it was in Scotland Yard's Crime Museum all through the 90s, um, and they didn't really think it was uh, genuine anyway, so they gave it back to the original owner. Um, now, when the shawl came for sale back in 2007 in March, that was at Lacey Scott and Knight up in Bury St Edmunds. Um, it said, you know purported to be taken from the fourth murder scene, that of Catherine Eddowes. Um, and there's, there was no real information I could find until one significant thing. And that was the pattern on the shawl, which happened to be Michaelmas daisies. Now, Michaelmas daisies... Can, can we just... I'd, yeah. I'd like to just get a picture in my mind here. Oh, so sure. you, you, bought the, you bought the shawl, um, you're bringing it home to a family situation, perhaps, uh, oh, yeah. setting it down on the table, having a look at it. I was. Uh, my wife and my, my son certainly weren't interested. Um, and so I kept it separate from, from our family. Really, it was uh, locked away uh, in, a, in a sort of a sealed glass cabinet and put away to a time I was ready to work on it, which originally was going to be a retirement project, but it never turned out to be that whatsoever. Kept on niggling. What was the, the germ there, though, that had you initially oh. interested in buying this show? Like oh, thank you very much for asking. OK, well... I've been in and around Brick Lane and the East End since 1989. Um, I love Bagel Bake. I'm there every Wednesday, uh, tradition. <laughs> um, and I'm always in one of the curry houses, and I always have been for over t- you know, 25 years. So I've obviously been here all from 89 to the year 2000, and then I watched that film From Hell with Johnny Depp. That's where the story started. I didn't know much about Jack the Ripper. I certainly didn't know where the Ten Bells was or never paid attention to it. So Brick Lane and, as you know, uh, Commercial Street are parallel. So the whole Ripper story is literally one street away from where I'd been for 11 years. And that's, I, was like, I was blown away by that. As I am when people come and do my tours, especially Londoners, that didn't realise half the stuff I tell them. And they say, we walk past this place every day and we didn't know. So that was the fascination. So I just came and did a bog-standard Ripper's tour and I realised that Jack the Ripper, the myth, the legend, actually covers a serial killer that butchered five real unfortunate women. They were victims. Um, And that's what the fascination was, the fact that this was an unsolved murder and this thing of what drove a murderer to commit such atrocities against women. Uh, That's where it started. We may profit, I guess, because everybody knows the name Jack the Ripper and the name indeed is probably better known than the details of the story. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to do what I suspect might be counterintuitive for you. Um, can you condense the, the story and, and maybe some of the, um, the cloudy edges of the story? Can you condense that into sort of 30 seconds as a nugget for somebody who knows nothing more than the name? Absolutely. OK. The name Jack the Ripper came from a, a letter named the Dear Boss Letter. That we're looking at now. Written in red ink, it came out two days before the double event where he murdered two women inside an hour. That really presented this myth, this fear of that name. But really, the Whitechapel murders occurred in a ten-week period from the 31st of August, 1888, to the 9th of November, 1888. Five women were murdered, actually brutalised, and the murderer just vanished into thin air. They were murdered in open streets, one in a room, but whatever what, he would just seem to just vanish into thin air. With certain witnesses that were around at the time, they didn't hear a thing. So it's as if a ghost walked the streets of Whitechapel, butchered women, 
and vanish without a trace. So the area uh, for those 10 weeks was riven with fear of who might be next? Oh, completely. In fact, for quite a while after as well. Absolutely. This was a terror, would be fair. You know, these women uh, that we w- I'd like to highlight at this point, there were 1,200 unfortunates, they were called back then, uh, walking these streets with no real homes to go to, living a day-to-day existence. They had no you know, real refuge for them uh, to protect them from this murderer. Are we thinking of the sort of people that we see in Dickensian rookeries? Um, you know what? No. I think really what you're looking at, if you look at the destitute class, which is what this area was, um, was named after Charles Booth did his poverty maps, the destitute class, you're thinking of hobnail boots, throw-on clothes, really downtrodden, uh, sort of not careworn at all, defeated women, down on their luck. And this is the only place they, could, they ended up because they know at the very least they could try and earn some money. And really, I, I think this is really tragic, more than anything, that they had no option other than to sell the bodies for four pennies. And you're, I think, in touch, was it through the shawl or, or through your, the, the subsequent research with uh, some of their descendants? Yeah, it was um, by pure fluke how I met uh, the direct female descendants of the fourth murder victim, Catherine. Um, yes, and uh, I know other members of uh, Catherine's family, and also the, mer- the first murder victim, Polly Nichols. I know uh, members of her family as well. Yeah. And what do they make of your research? Perhaps not of the result, but what do they make of your involvement and your uh, delving into the past in this way? They're exceptionally proud that I stuck with it and actually finally gave the name of the man that murdered their their ancestors. Yeah, um, well, they have a lot of respect. What I can tell you is um, when we solved it, the first person I went to see was the lady that helped me with the DNA when I told her, she held me very tightly and said thank you. It was, you know, it was an overwhelming, it was an overwhelming moment. It was like, I've done this, and that I'll never forget. Where were you at the time? Can you describe the moment? Oh, we were in Kent, yeah, we, um, not far from where she lived. We were in um, uh, just outside, you know, sort of a very lovely oldie-worldy tweet pub with um, sort of a beer garden, and um, literally just as we sat down, I said, right, I've got something to tell you. Did she know you were coming with the answer? Yeah, but she didn't know whether it was yes or no. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I really saved it till I saw her, which is what Dr. Yori Lohalainen did to me several times when he made me get from London to Liverpool to show me the results. <laughs> so he really did tease me at times, yeah. Now, he, he comes into the story uh, later on, and I'm glad, because the further and further we can defer me having to pronounce his name, the better. <laughs> but uh, let's uh, zoom back. You've got the shawl in your home. What's your first step into all of this okay well I, I just want to point out the fact that the reason why I bought the shawl was the pattern of Michaelmas daisies the daisies on there are small little flowers that come out in September but Michaelmas is um, what, why my life's changed irrevocably now Michaelmas is an Eastern Orthodox Christian celebration and a Western Christian celebration celebrated on two specific dates of the year the 29th of September and the 8th of November. And on those specific nights, the murderer went out to choose his victims to murder women. And in fact, three of the five murders happened on those two dates. With the shawl being left at the murder scene, I realised, as we got on down the, the line of the research, the shawl was left by him at the murder scene. Why would a, a murderer leave such an expensive garment there? Quite clearly, 
he let the world know in his sadistic way the date of the next murder. So he went out on the 29th. He murdered two women. He did disappear for five weeks. That next day, the, the next date he went out was the date that Michaelmas is celebrated. He left the clue with the shawl because of the pattern of Michaelmas daisies. Nobody put that together until I did. And it's only me that actually put that link together. And that's another one of those, I can't believe I did that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what that is. That's why I bought the shawl. We're going to delve further into that. Uh, why are we where we are right now? Okay, uh, where we are is when I do my tour, is uh, I reenact the third murder scene to actually give people an idea of what happened on the night of this terrible um, double murder, if you like. And what I want people to understand is what actually happened in that scene. So we reenact the scene in Wentworth Street. Um, that of the, the actual third murder was in Burner Street. It's, believe it or not, it's far from here, but over the road from where he lived at the, on the actual murder. So he popped out of his front door yeah. and committed a murder on his doorstep? On his, virtually, yeah. He literally come out of commercial. He lived in a Greenfield Road, back then Greenfield Street. He turned left, he crossed over Commercial Road, straight into Berner Street, happened across Elizabeth Stride, who was the third murder victim, and murdered her. The only thing is, is he was interrupted before he could um, perform his ritualistic mutilation by a Jewish uh, market trader called Louis Deemschutz, which forced him to find a further murder victim. So you've got a murder victim being found at one o'clock in the early hours of the 30th of September, and a murder victim being found at 1.45, so within 45 minutes. Even if when you read this, the story, you, it's unfathomable that a murderer could actually m- commit two heinous crimes and still vanish into thin air. Yeah. And it, from what you're saying, the, the murderer didn't feel he'd fully realised the act until he'd committed the barbarity following the, the death itself? Absolutely. Uh, the one thing that I, I put this in my book, which is extremely important to me, um, the fact that they were no longer alive before he actually did these sadistic things that he did to them. So, I mean, I can't, I can't even bring myself to even rationalise. I can't. I just can't think of, of that. I just, I'm just pray that they weren't alive when he did what he did to them. And there's, there's plenty of ways to find out what yeah. that was if people are interested. I don't think we need that. Perhaps we could look, uh, move around a little bit and look at some of the places in question. Absolutely. Shall we...? Uh... I think we're going to process through the market. We're walking up a place called Goulson Street. Um, by day, you get these fantastic smells of all the foods, fooderies, if you like, eateries, so you've got all different types of food on, on offer. And actually, any day, it's fabulous. By night, this, this becomes... A very lonely, desolate area, just like it would have been on the night. So we're just going to cross over to it's where it's like a fish restaurant over the road here. Traditional East End fare here, uh, chicken tikka, Chinese, Thai, Indian cuisine. It's fantastic. We're just going to cut across here. And we're going to come to a pause outside the Happy Days Fish and Chippery. That's that's the fella. The reason why this doorway we stand is uh, significant to the actual night of the double event, which is what this night is, the 29th of September, because the doorway in which we stand, which goes into this fish and chip shop, at 2 o'clock in the morning, a police officer from A Division 
So Hayes Division was the police uh, here. A Division, he was seconded in to, to anyone to help, all hands on deck. He walked past this very doorway, which was where we're standing right now. He shone his bullseye lamp inside to see if the Ripper was hiding in the doorway. And on the wall to the right was some chalk handwriting. On the floor beneath was a piece of bloodied apron taken from the fourth murder victim. The chalk handwriting said, the Jewers, J-U-E-S, the correct spelling for Jews, uh, are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. This is the place where we stand, is the only place we know in history where the murderer stood outside of the five murders, outside of his, where the crimes were committed. So the significant thing about this is that Sir Charles Warren, the police commissioner, came out. This could have been the most vital clue in the whole case at the time. He had it washed off before a photograph was taken. A significant error on his behalf. And in fact, that brought the downfall of his career and he had to resign. Oddly enough, he resigned on the day of the last murder. In today's more cynical society, I guess people would look at that with suspicion and and might suspect it of being a cover-up rather than ineptitude. Yes, you know, this thing about the Masons and the police, you know, there's there's so many uh, myths around this story, but the truth is, um, he was, uh, we don't know if it's true, if it's the, uh, the, police constable, uh, the police commissioner in Lehman Street for the city, or Sir Charles Warren himself that decided to have this washed off. The fact is, it would have brought a huge amount of attention onto the Jewish community that was already suffering a huge amount of anti-Semitism at the time. That's why it was done, why it was washed off. That's the truth. But really, you know, you can always put in whatever you like, but that, that's really what happened. It's certainly not emanating from your description of things, but you must have come across this in discussions of people who've got a significant knowledge of uh, these events. Yeah. There's, there's often a bit of a frisson, and I can only call it excitement, in the way that they describe in uh, great detail what's gone on. And it makes me slightly uneasy sometimes. Do you, I wonder if you come across that. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely with you on that. My whole aim of this was always just to find that, try and find the murderer. You know, I, I, I'm certainly, I, I obviously know an in-depth knowledge, but I certainly don't push that knowledge because really my story is about the truth behind this, mur- this series of murders. Who did it, um, how he did it, and really just to try and dispel the myth of Jack the Ripper, who is also just a name from a, a letter that was in fact written by an enterprising journalist and not the murderer himself. So yes, I, I completely agree with you that there is a people that do have this sort of I can't say weird, but I would say disturbing excitement of he did this here and this is what he did there. I I don't find that particularly exciting at all. Really, um, you really need to know the bare facts uh, when you're doing a tour and then what really happened, because that's the significance. Five poor unfortunates, these were human beings, got terrorised and brutalised on these streets back in 1888. They had families... And as I've said, you know, we know, you know, the descendants, these were real people. They fell on hard times and then fell at the hands of this murderer. That's, for me, more significant than saying, you know, glorifying the fact that he did what he did. And I think that's something I'd really like to get across. In what you've been doing, you must have been, you've talked about the, the letters in his hand and uh, where he stood. There's no way that you haven't gotten as close into his mind as you can to understand who he was. And I wonder how you feel about 
your relationship with him? Oh, that's, that's a very good point. Um, what it was was developing a, um, a felt sense for this murderer, you know. Um, you know uh, from his asylum record that he was suffering from mania, you know, that he was relatively young, but the right age for serial killers. Um, there's, a, there's an age for serial killers? Yeah, yeah, there's, I think it's between, I think it's just 21 to 35. So he falls in that age rate, yeah. It's bizarre, isn't it, really? I know that's what I thought when I looked it up. <laughs> but really, the research I did was I obviously knew where he lived. So the, the significant thing is, is pacing where he lived to the crimes. How could this murderer not be seen? Because he wasn't seen. There's only one time he was seen, and that was the scene of the third murder. Because it was, he, it was him that was seen attacking Elizabeth Stride, the third murder victim. And, and how have you answered that question of his invisibility? Do you know, um, I've, still today, all I can tell you is there were a lot more rat runs back then, a lot more back streets. Um, he could have certainly hidden. What was significant is how he got from the third murder to the fourth murder without being seen. Because whether he had blood or whatever, you know, the fact is he still wasn't seen. This, really going around the back ways, which I've also paced and timed from murder scene to his house, how he got there and how he basically just evaded capture. And how different is it now from uh, how it was back then? Yeah, massively different, especially where we are now. Obviously, this doorway still remains. We've got the old Georgians that you featured already down Fournier Street. Uh, But really, you know, there's not a lot left, especially when we go into the city. Relatively unrecognisable. I suppose now is a good time to drop a word from our sponsoring because I think the next question out of my mouth is going to take a while to answer and really it's about detection techniques because I think this is where your collaboration comes in. We'll be back with all of that and lots more in just a moment. We have teamed up with audible.co.uk to offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is register for one month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 150,000 to choose from. The 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And there's more good news. If you trialed the service over 12 months ago, the good people at Audible are giving you a chance to get your hands on another audiobook for free. So sign up at www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist. Londonist Out Loud is free every week. You can support the show and Londonist via the Londonist shop, where you'll find excellent gift ideas, including London postcard t-shirts, the secrets of the tube DVD, chunky logo mugs, tote bags, hoodies, the Inspector Sands tea, and the Londonist Oyster card holder. Treat yourself, support us, and share your love of London at londonist.com slash shop. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm N. Quentin Wolf. With me, Russell Edwards, and we are on the trail of Jack the Ripper. We are located on the junction of Creechurch Lane and Beavis Marks. Just before we get going, do we know anything about the name Beavis Marks? Yeah, Beavis Marks. This is, uh, yeah, this is uh, where one of the, where the great synagogue was. So this is actually where the, the Jewish population used to come to pray. And standing right behind you. So that's a very famous, well-known place, Bevis Marks, for that. Good. We left the story with you looking at a shawl yeah. um, and wondering what to make of it and, and starting to... Uh, what order did this come in? Did you start to put the science behind your theories or did the theories follow the science? Um, basically, the theories uh, was before the science. So we knew about the Michaelmas connection. That's why I bought the shawl. But it wasn't until I took part in an Australian documentary 
did I meet Dr. Yorilo Halainen, and that's when this, the real story started. So how did uh, how did this happen? You're on, you're on TV, and then you got a what a phone call or something? No, no. Um, what happened was I got called by the descendants of Polly Nichols, believe it or not, the first murder victim, because I've known them for years, and they said they were approached and asked would would um, I take part in a documentary with the show. They had a ripper suspect. Um, it was Frederick Bailey Demon. His wife was born where I li- I was uh, born. So I said, well, I know it's not him. But what they promised me was I'd meet a forensics expert in ancient DNA testing on the programme. So considering no one was prepared to help me in the real world, as in I went to UCL, I went to all the ripperologists, and no one wanted to help me with this story. Why have not? Perpetuating the myth. No one really wants this to be solved. That's the thing. It's a massive tourist uh, industry for this, which, for my opinion should be the other way around this should be the truth being told who would really want to go and do a Peter Sutcliffe tour you know it's it's not right so really they just didn't want this ever to be solved it, this is the East End version of the Loch Ness Monster really you know and it draws in over a million people a year yeah is it really as many as that yeah absolutely so you've been talking to Polly Nichols' uh, family. In fact, just as a very quick aside, yeah. and I, I say it because I've met somebody who is a descendant of one of those in the frame for being Jack the Ripper. Oh, okay. And he mentions it with pride is the wrong word, but there, there's some interest in the notoriety of his ancestor. Not some of the emotions that you might expect if you were related to somebody in the present day who was suspected of committing these crimes. You, you must have come across some of the other people who are descended from suspects. Yeah, I have. You know, on these walks that I do and I give, um, I get so many people that, that say, I, I know such and such, I was descended from such. But, but really, that's, you know, it's great that they, they are descended from these people for them. But for me, it, it doesn't matter because they weren't the murderers anyway. You know, and again, it's something to say in the pub, isn't it? Or to your friends, or why, you know, but really nothing more than that. Again, my main focus, as it always has been, was to unmask the murderer. It wasn't, you know, the sensationalism of what people seem to think this story deserves. And I've got a feeling that this uh, operates a little bit more like an episode of Columbo than <laughs> Agatha Christie, uh, <laughs> because it sounds like you had an idea of the name of the person rather early on. Yeah, um, I shared the Michaelmas connection of the murder dates with the creator of the Black Museum, a guy called Dalla McCormack. When I told him that, he gave me the name. In fact, I'll tell you what he said. He said, that, that, was an, that was an amazing bit of information, Russ. I don't even know why they do these tours, write these films, write these books, or do these documentaries. We've always known who Scotland Yard, uh, we've always known who Jack the Ripper was. It was Aaron Kosminski, and something along the lines of that is how Alan told me. So right at the very start, when I bought the shawl, I had the name Aaron Kosminski. When you actually look it up, there were only ever three suspects, Michael Ostrog, Montague John Druitt and Aaron Kosminski. There's only ever three. Kosminski finally was named as the, the, the suspect because he was the one that was identified. Uh, so your job here was to get this to stand up? Absolutely. You know, it's a bit like um, misdirection. They always know who it was. But if you look over here, it could be Jill the Ripper. It could be Prince Albert Victor. It could be Sir William Gould. But that's just all... Well, for want of a better word, it's just obfuscating the truth. Really, he was the suspect. Let's look down that line. Montague Drum Drew, 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 it doesn't actually really fit the frame. And Michael Ostrog was too old. 
because this man was seen, he was a lot younger than a man, um, and it certainly wasn't Ostrog because he was far too old to beat the actual murder who was, see- was seen. So when I looked at that, plus the fact that the Scotland Yard says it was Aaron Kosminski, I had the name, I had the Michaelmas connection, and I had the shawl. And now you've got your scientist, Yuri... OK, yeah, his name, um, <laughs> as, as he will no doubt uh, always punish me if I get it wrong, is uh, Dr Yari Lohalainen. And he's on your team? I say on my team, we, were, we basically, it was like a joint venture to go forward between us, and it's a relationship that's developed over the years, where um, it's a friendship, that I've, a friendship, a bond, if you like, that we'll have to the day we die. We know what he does, but in practical terms, what did he do at that point? Ah, now the thing is, I only met Yari originally through the documentary. I asked Yari, I said, could you tell me, really, in your professional opinion, what, if this shawl has any connection to this murder whatsoever, and just let me know, am I wasting my time? If I am wasting my time, I'll just put it to one side and leave it. Um, That's not what happened, though. What really happened... I gave Yari the, the, the show for the day. He did a lot of friend, special forensic infrared lighting um, on it. And this is what he said to me. There's a huge blue section on the shawl. It's about nine foot long, the shawl, and about two foot wide. The blue section is covered completely in arterial blood spatter in the form of slashing. And I know for, for the listeners, he took his thumb to his throat as if you cut it, and the noise he made was like spray that's what's on that shore there's two blood clots very clear to the naked eye so we could see uh, he said they're evidence of split body parts for non-scientists like you and I it would be human organs have been placed on that shore those stains he said are incredibly difficult to forge in fact you'd need to be an expert to forge them and finally there was um, one ejaculate on the other end of the shore now, we know on the, uh, the afternoon of um, the night of the murder, on the 29th, Catherine Eddowes was drunk. Uh, she was arrested for being drunk and disorderly and thrown into Bishopsgate Police Station. So we naturally assumed that she got some money by selling a body to, uh, you know, to a passerby. And so we took no notice of that semen uh, deposit at the time. But those, those words, arterial blood spatter in form of slashing, and uh, evidence of split body parts that is the exact re- evidence or the results of the murder of the fourth murder victim from where the shawl was taken and that's where that's, that was it then I was, I was drawn in completely where do you go from there it sounds as though it's all uh, sewn up you've got your answer ah. well it wasn't as easy as that actually what happened was um, with something being over 125 years old we could not use any surface material. <clears throat> what Yari said to me was um, it would just be contaminated. You don't know how many people have handled that garment. Um, even if it was 10, the cells on the, the top of the silk and the other side, the other side you know, it ju- there's no way we could actually get any real samples we could work with. One thing I was told about silk, unlike wool, that silk has a, a propensity for cells or any anything to last on the surface to fall off but even though even with when i was told that it still wasn't enough so yari we didn't know what to do and yari being this again this i'd always i rate yari as a genius he came up 
give this guy a brick wall, he'll find a way to get over it or knock through it. So he invented his own vacuuming technique. Now we're talking about a garment that's got uh, about two millimetres in thickness. He managed to basically use a, a special buffer that he created through a special pipette that he, he had uh, made and he managed to get ma- uncontaminated samples from what was embedded in the weave of that silk. Yeah, and not only that, there's also the dye in there as well. So he managed to get all that out and managed to get clear, uncontaminated samples that we could work with. Bit of a clever man. This particular piece of evidence bearing both kinds of clue on it, this was just a gift from above for you, wasn't it? Yeah. And when I say for you, I guess I also mean for well, the uh, the families. Absolutely. Um, I also kept the descendants of Polly Nichols in the loop with me at this point while we were going along with the story. And they were a, a great source of um, encouragement. They always literally boosted me just in case um, I hit a brick wall and didn't know how to get past it. They really supported me and kept me going. Have there been uh, others before you who have led the descendants to believe that they might be onto something? Uh, that I don't know. Um, there's, there's only one bit of DNA work, and that was on a letter, a stamp, even though uh, that would only ever prove that somebody wrote a letter. Didn't mean they committed the murders. Other than that, no. And I was very mindful of not, uh, at this point, um, very mindful of not leading somebody astray, as if to say, I'm nearly there, I'm nearly there. But really, no, I was always, as I have always been, as I am today, completely 100% honest for where I am at that situation in time. So Andy and Sue, um, I know Andy and Sue Parler, would be very happy for me to let you know who they are. They're an incredible couple that really helped me all the way through this. So the thing is, we got samples, and from that, Yori managed to get DNA. Now, when Yori got DNA, he told me that the blood spatter and the body parts that were placed on that shore were human. Because if it was animal um, uh, residue, it wouldn't fire up and we'd get no DNA. So we conclusively knew at that point that there'd been a murder. Whether it was linked to Catherine Edos or not, that was the next part of the journey. But really, we had something here. This Someone's had the throat cut and the evidence is all over this uh, artefact. That was the, the, the thing that spurred me on. It wasn't the gory, oh my God, this is fantastic. Not at all. What this was, was literally, we've, we're, we've got something here. And you know what? What we've got to do from here is try and match the evidence we've got on that shore with a direct female descendant of Catherine Eddowes. And I'm presuming that was done. That was um, not as easy as you think, trying to find a descendant. Oh, right. Uh, yeah, we had to find her, yeah. Um, well, the, the, the obvious problem being that her life was cut short. Catherine had children, and it was through her, her daughter. There was a documentary, again, you can go and find this online, called Jack the Ripper, Find My Past. I watched it on the telly, or on the TV, and lo and behold, right in front of me is the direct female descendant down the female line. So, to clarify, the, the great, great, great granddaughter... Daughters, daughters, daughter, daughter, daughter um, of Catherine Eddowes, and we need her for a mitochondrial DNA. And that's how uh, the next stage happened. So I contacted Karen, her name is, her name's Karen Miller, um, and she's a fantastic lady. She said to me, if you can find any information that will help find the murderer of Catherine, because we call her Catherine, not, not the Eddowes victim, her name's Catherine, her name always, you know, her name is Catherine. 
I'll give you any help I can. And she gave me a DNA sample. Then from there, the best part of a year after, uh, Yari calls me. I said, you've got to get to Liverpool with where he was working in his labs. So I very calmly got a 70 mile an hour up the M1 and the M6 <laughs> to get to the labs. But he didn't tell you by phone like a, no, a nice friendly no, person would? No, no, Yari, no, Yari doesn't work that way. He's very dispassionate, he's very scientific. He will not uh, sway one way or the other. Russ, you need to get to the labs and you need to get there now. Are you sure there's not an, uh, an element of theatre going on here on his part? <laughs> there was this thing where he said, you know what, Russ, if I tell you, I can't tell you, you need to see it for yourself and get here as quick as you can, which I did. And um, I remember that day, I'll tell you what it was. He sat me in the lab, he put me in front of the screen, he pressed the button, and there, right in front of my very eyes, was a 100% DNA match. He calls it a haplotype match between the DNA from the direct female descendant of the fourth murder victim, who is Catherine Eddowes, and her great-great-great-granddaughter. It was just bang on, bingo, that was it. If you want the truth... I actually felt like I was walking on air because I knew we'd nailed this shawl. This is the only item definitely linked to this case because there's nothing else. That for me was enough. My literary agent said to me, um, this, is not, this is not enough for the ripper world or the world because they will try and rip you to pieces. This is a big industry. They will try and find a way to obfuscate this or try and debunk the research. And again, at this point, I'd been so involved in it, I wasn't prepared to let anyone know at that point what I'd done. So what we did was we had to date the shawl. So to see if it wasn't a modern-day forgery and some clever person had managed to do this. So the next thing to do was, um, it's called, um, uh, well, basically, we did a, a scientific testing that Yari did. We found that the shawl wasn't silkscreen printed, that takes us before 1910. Then we needed to place it before 1888, the time of the murder. So I went to the, the, science, uh, the uh, experts at the V&A Museum. I went to the Huguenot Society, the Silk Weavers from Spitalfields. Yeah, you're in the right spot for Not investigating it. materials. Exactly. Uh, then I went to the textiles expert at Christie's, the textiles expert at Sotheby's, and I found a silk expert in Switzerland called Diane Thalman, who specialises in shawls. And again, it's easy said and done because I've got to say the story of what I've got and what I'm trying to find. Anyway, the V&A and the Huguenots were no good to me, but the other three said to me, Russ, this show was made between 1815 and 1856. Really, they're looking about 1835 when it was made. Oh, and it wasn't made in England. Now, that wasn't made in England was this thing about uh, the Huguenots. Now, the Huguenots, obviously, I'd naturally assumed it was Spitalfield silk. It wasn't Spitalfield silk at all. So I said to them, could this be Eastern European? All three of them said, you know, quite possibly. So basically, with what the, the fact that the shawl wasn't made in England, it was made in Eastern... I said, could it be Eastern European? Knowing Kosminski came from Poland, fleed, fleeing the Russians. Would you believe? They said, quite possibly. I found a silk shawl manufacturer that were still in existence in the early 19th century called Pavlovsky Posad that made silk shawls. They were Eastern Orthodox Christians and one of the three signature patterns back then was daisies. So that was a direct link to where the shawl was made. So in fact, it had nothing to do with the murder victim at all. The only other person that could have brought the shawl to that scene was the murderer. I went back to my agent. He said, you know what? 
you need to do it scientifically, even though that's brilliant, which is where we get a die analyst, a guy called um, Fayez Ismail. He subjected the, a, a piece of the shore to mass spectrometry. He said these following three things to me. Number one, it wasn't owned by a street prostitute, Russ. This is owned by an upper to middle class, uh, middle class to upper um, class family. And Kosminski's family were prosperous uh, tailors back then, just so you know. Um, he said that the shawl, the blue, the, the blue section, is water-soluble. The dye would run if it ever got wet. Well, it hasn't run um, at all. And uh, the third one, he said, the dye comes from St. Petersburg in northern Russia. When we put this all together, it turned out that the shawl was taken to the murder scene by the murderer and, in fact, was owned by him and not the murder victim. Now, the revelation of that which was a very spine-tingling moment for me, was, well, there's a semen deposit on the shore. So it wasn't Catherine Eddowes' customer. It could have only been deposited there by one other person, the murderer himself. That moment of thinking the rippers left evidence that if we could get any DNA from, we've actually got the DNA from the murderer. Well, don't leave us in suspense. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What what I love there is the big pause there. Uh, I I think this is where everybody tips off the uh, front of their chair. It's also the coffee cup falls out of the hand. (laughs) Oh, my Lord. So what happened next? Okay, so again, back to the contamination. This this just became an extended version of the podcast, people. Yeah, this... (laughs) (laughs) This is worth waiting. (laughs) So the thing is, is uh, Yari again managed to get uncontaminated samples. And then we gave them to a specialist now. Uh, okay, so for, the, for, for your listeners, it's, um, it's a sperm head analyst. So, you know, uh, so a, a special scientist. It's just like when a, a sperm head has uh, problems in his life and he wants to go and talk uh, to someone. No, no, no. What it is, is, you know, when, when somebody leaves residue, um, ejaculate, if you like, you can actually get the DNA to find who the murderer is. This is what this guy does. And uh, there's only three of them in the country. And the gentleman that helped us actually managed to get uh, cells from the samples... So on the, it was actually the 12th of December 2012, Yori calls me, says we've got cells and we've got DNA. So we've actually got DNA from this murderer. Again, that was a bit of a, a moment, to say the least. So I called the East Ham Cemetery where Aaron Kosminski is buried and spoke to the head of burials to ask if I can get permission to exhume him to extract some DNA from his tooth. Because that's where you can actually get DNA from a mammoth. Uh, a tooth from a mouth inside the tooth it still retains all that information could you uh, that, that that call that you had to make there uh, presumably somewhat out of the blue how did that go amazing because really when I told my story to the gentleman uh, uh, you know the head of burials it was sort of a, wow that's amazing again by this time I'd known how to approach people rather than just storm in like a bulldozer just really take a step back and look at what the perspective and the context of what I'm describing not this oh guess what it's this Jack the Ripper murder it was really you know this is a serious uh, scientific investigation we're doing and um, I had to be as Yari has taught me to be dispassionate so we're coming in we're trying to do something tangible and real, which is finally conclude who the murderer was of these poor five, you know, these poor unfortunates, the five murder victims. Just looking around the, the back of the curtain just for a quick moment, uh, we, we started off uh, with you buying the shawl how many years prior to this? Oh, yeah, uh, five. 
So in that time, you had uh, business interests and uh, family life. How have things evolved on those fronts? Yeah, well, I had to sell the businesses. Um, really, um, we, we sold in 2008, and really that was the time when I just threw myself in earnest on this. Um, and uh, my wife and children have been very supportive, though uh, detached, so I don't involve them in this, uh, because let's face it, this is a, a murder mystery uh, to to outdo all murder mysteries this is the biggest unsolved murder in the world really so I didn't want my kids to be brought into this and my wife very happily is doesn't want anything to do with this whatsoever but you're in a uh, a privileged position um, and a fortunate position in terms of this then that you are able to follow this through some people might have to worry about putting bread on the table yeah yeah I, I, I was doing quite well I've always been an entrepreneur so yes that, that's what helped, yes. It definitely was okay financially to do this work. Um, if I wasn't, we would, I'd still be about five years behind. Um, but the thing is, is um, by this point, when we got the cells, we called the synagogue, the United Synagogue, um, the look after Islam Cemetery. They didn't allow me to exhume him. They wouldn't let me do it. So we hit a massive stumbling block. Yari says to me, did Aaron Kosminski have a sister? And I said, yeah, and she had nine children. He said to me, if I can find a direct female descendant, he could do the work that way and get the DNA and work on the mitochondrial DNA that way. Well, he did. And a year... So that was December 2012 when we had the cells and the DNA. It was a year and two more, 14 months after, from a whole long scientific journey of ups and downs that Yori and I had, that it was on the February... It was on the night of the... February the 21st a half eight which was a Friday when I got that all important email the text came through Yori said to me go and check your inbox thank god he didn't make me go to Liverpool <laughs> that night I'll never forget um, I basically pressed the button and Yori he is very um, humble you know and he doesn't really like to brag at all but his email said something on the lines of Russ even I've got to admit this is a work of genius I've managed to get degraded 125 year old DNA and work with it and press the attachment and find out yourself I press the attachment and there half eight on a Friday night which I'll never forget was a hundred percent DNA match with the DNA that we got from the semen on that shawl that we dated and we'd actually put at that murder scene and the direct female descendant of Aaron Kosminski's sister. So I can definitely tell you this. The man that murdered uh, these five women in a ten-week period known as the Autumn of Terror in 1888 was a man by the name of Aaron Kosminski. He was a Polish Jewish immigrant that came to move uh, just on the outside, it's Mile End Old Town, with his family in 1881. Um, he was 23 at the time of the murders. Um, he was identified um, by an eyewitness had seen attacking the third murder victim but the, the witness would not testify in court so the police had no other choice but to certify him insane after a spell in, in Mile End Workhouse he was formally incarcerated into Colney Hatch Asylum um, where his job, his occupation was hairdresser or really hairdresser surgeon barbers and, and hairdressers were barber surgeons back then they used to perform um, not, I would say minor um, but um, surgical procedures um, he was suffering from mania uh, three years after Colney Hatch 
They moved him to Leaston Asylum, where he died of gangrene, aged 54, in March 1919. The man, always has been and always will be, is known as Aaron Kosminski. Thank you. And what about the man known as Russell Edwards? Uh, You've solved... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One of the biggest mysteries uh, known to us. Uh, what happens to you afterwards? What, where do you go after that? <laughs> what a question. Well, uh, I can tell you the last 10 months I've never, I've never envisaged what my life would be like. Um, the great recognition that I have from a lot of people in the world is really, really, it's really satisfying and rewarding to have. Um, Yori and I, at this point now, we're, obviously I'll get back to some sort of normality in my life, so I'm back into property, which I adore. Um, I've, what I've done as well is I've established these walking tours to tell this very story, not to glorify the name Jack the Ripper, but to let the world know the truth what really happened here in 1888 and I'm very passionate about the world knowing about that um, and what we've done is developed that quite well which we're very happy with and um, Yori and I miss that journey we miss that, um, that buzz if you like that sort of we're getting somewhere you know so Yori and I have two more very big high profile uh, unsolved murders that we're looking at uh, that we're going to look in the new year yeah are we able to say what they are uh, I'd love to tell you, but uh, I, I can't. Uh, but you'll soon know. Uh, both of them, again, um, will put to rest, uh, again, not the sensationalism part, but actually put the family's mind at rest. And that's what we did with this case as well. That's where we're coming from, and that's why we've chosen those two murders, uh, those two unsolved murders. Yeah. We will watch this space, of course. Um, I wanted to know, uh, just in closing... Clearly, and you mentioned there's a big industry around not knowing who Jack the Ripper is. Uh, do your tentacles tell you that other people running Jack the Ripper tours have amended theirs to include this new information? Oh no, no, they, they just, not at all. They uh, sort of try and dispel it and say no, it's not real, you know. 
but I've got I don't can't really pass comments on the way that they do their tours, but that's how they do it, and I have let them get on with it. I'm very happy with letting the world know the truth, which is where I've always come from. And uh, the name of your book and your publisher, of course, is um, it's it's by Macmillan. Uh, my book's called Naming Jack the Ripper. It did take quite a long time to write, three years, and it's just a story of who I am. Uh, just a you know somebody who grew up in a, in a council estate from Merseyside, um, and literally got drawn in. And through my passion and my sort of drive, I've managed to solve the biggest unsolved murder mystery in the world. Excellent, Woods. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you. So there we go. That's this week's episode done. Or so I thought. I shook hands with Russell in a very friendly manner and we went our separate ways. And as I went on my way, I started thinking, which is always dangerous. And I realised that one of the sensations that I'd had while we'd been talking, Russell and I, was that I'd been rushed past at one or two points, and I think not deliberately, moments where I felt like there was something I needed to stop and get hold of. And that's always a bad idea to ignore that feeling, I've found. But in this line of work, I'm blessed with a recording of everything that goes on in a conversation. And so I was able to listen back to what was said. And as I started listening to some of that stuff, I was able to isolate exactly what the problem areas were. And there were a few of them. Some of the stuff that had been said just didn't make any sense to me. So, for example, the dye specialist had said that the shawl had remained dry. If it had come into any contact with liquid, then it would have run. And yet, wasn't the claim here that evidence of uh, fluids was present? Arterial spray, and in fact a, a number of organs placed all over this uh, this shawl. That seemed odd. I couldn't quite make sense of what I'd heard there. And anyway, what about this idea of Jack the Ripper, who, of course, we always imagine with a top hat and a white shirt and a cane, something a bit like that. Why would he be leaving a shawl behind? And I tried to think of any image of a Victorian man of any social class or any trade that I could, and nowhere did a nine-foot shawl covered in daisies fit into the picture. Also, and this is a really big one given what we're talking about, the shawl is a key piece of evidence, and the, the proof that Russell was talking about here was that this particular person had ejaculated onto the shawl, and this other person's blood was on the shawl. In and of itself, that doesn't prove that he, Aaron Kosminski, was the killer. I couldn't even see that it proved that Aaron Kosminski was present at the death of Catherine Eddowes, merely that the shawl with his ejaculate on it was. Now, let me be really clear about this. I'm not saying I'm not qualified to say, I'm not knowledgeable enough to say, and I don't think there's enough evidence there, as far as I can see from from my brief exposure to this subject, that Aaron Kosminski was not the killer in these cases. I've got no idea. What does bother me is that I was proposing to go to air at the end of the week with my weekly podcast containing a claim which, as far as I could see, had a lot of problems with it. I spent all night googling articles on the subject and that just made it worse. And first thing in the morning I was up and recording this. Okay, well it's the morning after my interview with Russell Edwards and I reckon I've got no more than about three or four hours sleep. I've spent most of the night 
looking through uh, all sorts of forums and discussion boards about Jack the Ripper. Uh, what's apparent is that there are a lot of armchair experts. And by the way, an armchair expert is how Russell himself was billed on at least one of the articles that came out late in 2014 when his theory was uh, first put forward, his, his definitive uh, case that it was Aaron Kosminski who was the ripper. I wanted to get uh, more of a sense of the backstory of what had happened uh, with the Jack the Ripper killings, just so I felt a little bit more informed. And so I just typed something really uh, cheap and easy into uh, Google along the line of, I know, Jack the Ripper murders or something like that. And one of the first things that came up was an article from The Independent from fairly recently in which the DNA analysis of the shawl was pretty badly scotched. Uh, The allegation in the article was that the scientists had made a mistake of some sort and that far from proving conclusively that one particular person or one uh, maternal uh, ancestry line could be uh, identified on the scarf. In fact, what the DNA analysis proved, the allegation goes, was that any one of a a wide uh, number of people could have been responsible for leaving this DNA deposit on the scarf. I'm I'm talking about an order of uh, tens of thousands more people than, than just one. So the Uh, suggestion in this article was that peer critique of um, Dr Yari's method did not find it to be satisfactory Uh, and also this did not narrow it down uh, in anything like the way that Russell had told me. So that started to worry me of course because if the DNA evidence wasn't solid then what else wasn't solid? And I got on to Googling Russell's book and to finding out what other people had thought of it, what its reception had been, um, whether ripperologists, as they're known, had found this to be conclusive evidence at all. And, well, this is when uh, alarm bells really started to ring. Uh, Russell had indeed prepared me, as you'll have heard in the interview, for the idea that uh, other people interested in the ripper would not want to see a definitive answer be put forward and accepted because there's too much of an industry in getting excited about who Jack the Ripper might have been Um, Jack the Ripper is worth a lot of money and well so it proved um, plenty of people on the message boards sticking with other theories it seems as though Patricia Cornwell the, the author has spent a substantial amount of money getting some of these famous letters tested now as I said at the beginning of the interview with Russell I didn't know anything at all. I wasn't really interested in Jack the Ripper. It just seemed really to me like a lot of ghoulishness and a lot of commercial opportunism. And I quickly saw what the appeal might be. Uh, People referred to the letters as though they were old friends. The To Hell letter and the Dear Boss letter and so on. Plenty of other candidates still in the frame. But much more than that, lots of people willing to give their time to debunking myths about who Jack the Ripper might have been and it reminded me actually of something that's been enormous in my business which is the serial podcast in which a cold case got opened up and uh, the, the result of the massive popularity of the podcast 
itself was that a lot of armchair punditry was ignited. And I'm talking about really informed people, criminal lawyers, people with expertise in cell phone technology, all of the skills, essentially, that you'd want your armchair detectives to have in trying to solve a crime of that particular sort. And so it proved with Jack the Ripper as well. All sorts of people online who, for example, were uh, credible and as, as verified as you can get on a message board, verified retired detective inspectors pitching in with not only their uh, understanding of the evidence but also their experience of handling murder investigations and being careful not to allow pet theories to be formed and then uh, the, the evidence to be found to support them. Uh, rather it to be the other way around, that you look at the evidence and see what it says. Um, And so this is where it gets really worrying because, uh, as far as I can see, there are so many holes in the evidence. I'm going to be putting some of those to Russell, I hope. I'm going to try and get hold of him today. I want answers. For example, this scarf that came up on auction. Where did that come from? There's no scarf listed in the items that were found at the murder scene that he was talking about the scarf uh, wasn't mentioned there so where did this scarf fit in that was supposedly found at that murder scene what about contamination it doesn't sound as though the scarf was kept in pristine conditions Uh, it sounds as though there would have been plenty of DNA contamination even from descendants of the murder victim who went to have a look at it at uh, festivals and conferences and so on so what's going on here Um, we have a picture for example of Russell Edwards holding up the shawl uh, barehanded just as you or I would hold up uh, our uh, scarf just before we put it on to go out no concern about contamination apparently in that picture so what is actually going on here how clean is this sample how do we know it's got anything to do with the murder scene itself and another wrinkle in all of this is that uh, apparently serial killers are, and this, is, this again comes from a retired detective inspector uh, serial killers are creatures of habit he says and their uh, technique and their method vary very little between one murder and the next the idea that uh, Jack the Ripper would leave a trophy like this behind at one of his murder scenes um, seems like a massive departure from his normal method. Is this consistent with the mindset of a serial killer? More to the point, the fact that there was blood from the victim and semen from Kosminski found on this shawl still doesn't mean that he murdered her. I mean, he might have had sex with her. She was a prostitute, after all. But I don't see how we can say anything more than that. And on and on the questions go. I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get a chance to put these to Russell. I wonder what his view will be of that. Once again, I'm not saying that Aaron Kosminski was not Jack the Ripper, but by standing idly by without posing further questions, I was worried that I might be endorsing what seemed a rather shaky idea that he was. And then there was the shop, and after everything that Russell had said about the commercialism, the shop really shocked me. It's part of Russell's website, and on it you can buy a number of interesting items. You can buy top hats in a range of sizes. You can buy, for some reason, uh, goggles of the type that uh, Mr. Toad might have used in his car. And then there's all the Jack the Ripper emblazoned merchandise. For example, you can buy a Jack the Ripper lip balm. 
You can buy Jack the Ripper luxury chocolate. How about a Jack the Ripper shopping bag? A Jack the Ripper piggy bank? This stuff seems pretty tacky to me. All of it has a top-hatted silhouette logo on it. Even in spite of all of Russell's TV appearances all around the world and the claim of a, a million copies of his book sold, was it possible that I'd fallen for a hoax of some sort? tried to set up another meeting with him but we missed each other in the way that sometimes happens but in the end we managed to find it some time on the phone and what follows unedited except for a, a general tidying up of excessive umming is the recording of the phone conversation i had with russell two days later the sound of london londonist out loud with n quentin wolf listen free every week on your favorite podcast platform subscribe via itunes and get great extra content at Londonist.com. Tweet the show at Londonist Sound and see pictures of all our guests on the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. Hello? Oh, hi there, Russell. Hello, Quentin. How are you? I'm not too bad. How are you? There are a few things that, um, that came up in the interview the other day. I was just listening back to the recording that we did, and there are a couple of places there... It's something that I should have learnt a long time ago, which is that I should, when, when I don't understand something, I should stop and ask rather than just let it uh, flow past me. So if it's all right, I wanted to start with Michaelmas daisies. Um, yeah. And I was just trying to get my head, if, if I understood what you said correctly, I think what you told me was that the shawl had on it a pattern of daisies, which yeah. had, uh, you recognise them as being Michaelmas daisies. And the report, the report said that they were Michaelmas daisies. Ah, Okay. And that corresponded with Michaelmas, uh, yeah. two, two versions of Michaelmas, like the old the old church of a new church version or something like that. Um, yeah, the Eastern, yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. So I'm still not sure I understand, though, what that means to you. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. When I um, needed a, I needed to find a reason to purchase the shawl, and there was nothing much to go on. The curator of the Black Museum at the time, a guy called Alan McCormick, um, said to me that they didn't really believe it was real um, or genuine or had anything to do with the murders at all. So I had not, no help from Scotland Yard with that. So the only thing I had to go on was the reports that said that the pattern on the shore was Michaelmas daisies. Now, Michaelmas daisies, I looked that up, and as they are small little flowers that come out in September, which looked like the pattern on the shore. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, I always I wondered what the word Michaelmas meant, if there was any significance behind that. And then if you look up at the Encyclopedia Britannica, you'll see Michaelmas is a celebration by Eastern Orthodox Christians and Western Christians celebrated every year on two specific dates. They are the 29th of September and the 8th of November. And both of those and are those, both of those are murder yeah. dates. Exactly. He went out on those nights to find a murder victim. It just so happens on the 29th of September, I, the night that he went out on the 29th, he murdered two. Now, I, I, understand, all of, I understand all of that, but I, I think what I'm not understanding is what you imagine the role of the shawl was then in the celebration okay. of, of, in the celebration of Michaelmas. Do you imagine that he was, for example, walking around wearing this shawl? Ismail when he did the dye analysis that uh, it was an interior garment 
And then I looked at uh, the garments that the Jewish people wore, or the Jewish men wore, and they wear these like uh, big silk scarves and things around their waist. And I wondered if I had any significance to him that he did that as well. So whether it was a shawl or a garment that a Jewish man would wear. But what Fayez Ismail said to me was that it's an interior garment. But it's about it's, it's about it's about nine foot long, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's huge. It could easily wrap around you as a as a man, you know. Yeah, quite a so quite a few yeah, times. So it, it seems surprising uh, in a way that. So he'd have to sort of take that out from under his clothes to utilize it in in some other way. Well, well, the thing is, is if you look at if you look at say uh, Annie Chapman, the second murder victim, who was bestride, he actually t- uh, tied a scarf around their throats to stop the blood spatter um, from um, spraying everywhere to make to make the the mess uh, a lot worse. If you like, I say the mess, the actual sort of the arterial spray. Mm-hmm. So remember that he was interrupted murdering Elizabeth Stride. By the time he got to Catherine Edwards, he didn't have that. But he did have, he obviously had this garment with him. You know, he obviously left. He, 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 I always now, actually, when you look at the research that I've done, you look at, he, he, he purposely was going to leave this shawl at the scene of the, the, that murder, whether it was going to be one or two that he, to let the world know the date of his next murder which was the 8th of November, which is the other day that Michaelmas is celebrated. With the pattern on the shawl of Michaelmas daisies, that's where it all came from. And that was the main reason why I bought that shawl. Did he leave any clues at his other murder sites? No, there's, there's no other evidence whatsoever. This is the only thing, and this is why, it's like, you know, this is so rare, this is the only one piece of tangible evidence linking to that murder case in history. I've got one other question. There's one other that was really bugging me. Um, yeah. And I, I couldn't put my finger on it while we were talking, but afterwards I was thinking, um, and, and this is about the DNA that you and the doctor found on the shore. And you, you explained quite graphically, I can't remember whether we did it on mic or not, actually. You explained quite graphically the, the shapes of um, viscera that seem to be... Yeah. Uh, left on the shawl in in blood, essentially. So it's as though yes. somebody had had ladled the innards of this poor woman onto well, the shawl. Evidence of spit body parts, yeah. Right, and then there was the the other DNA sample was uh, ejaculate semen from um, the, the the male. So I was I was I was thinking about this, and I was trying to work out uh, even with. So you said that a lot of the other evidence was already in existence. For example, Kosminski was already being identified as a suspect and, and in some quarters he was being identified as a, as a killer. So the, the shawl and the DNA testing is the new thing here. But how, how does the fact of these two samples of DNA prove that one, one of these people killed the other person? Given, for example, that she was a prostitute, it, su- it suggests they might have come into sexual contact with each other, but then she might have come into yeah. sexual contact with lots of people. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so I, when I purchased the shawl, it was called the Edo shawl, and I'd naturally assumed it was um, Catherine Eddowes who owned it. But when we actually um, got uncontaminated... DNA samples from the blood that was found on the on the shore that uh, Dr. Yari Lukalainen identified as arterial blood spatter and evidence of split body parts. So that means human organs were placed on that shore. And um, 
we we were very happy with the fact that we'd linked that shawl to the murder. But the thing is, we were asked to date it and prove it wasn't a forgery, that this wasn't a modern-day forgery. So when we dated it, it turned out that it was in existence between 1815 and 1856, way before the murders. When we did a, a scientific test called mass spectrometry, which is Dr. Fired Ismail's uh, specialty, um, he told me that the shawl was an expensive silk garment and um, it wouldn't have never been owned by a street prostitute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't owned by a street prostitute, it would have been owned by an upper middle class um, family. The other thing he said was that the actual dye, the blue dye on the shore, was water soluble. So if that was taken outside in the rain, it would have, all the dye would have run out of the garments. Mm-hmm. And it's really phenomenal that over 25 years no one's washed it because it's still there, uh, sort of... Um, it's still on there, showing no signs of being, you know, run, uh, that the, shore, the actual buyers run out of the shore. And then finally, he said to me that the shore, the buy on the shore itself comes from St. Petersburg in northern Russia. Which I remember so we, we I remember we said that, and, and that, that gave you a suggestion that, that this was from an East European person, somebody who would have purchased the shore in that Absolutely. part of the world, yeah. Yeah, and then it was that sort of that realisation that uh, it wasn't Catherine Edo's shore at all. It was actually taken to the murder scene by the murderer. So it did not matter one iota whether Catherine Meadows had slept with any men in the afternoon or serviced them for the four penny charge. She didn't have the shawl in her possession anyway. So that lead, led me to the one ejaculate. There's only one ejaculate on that shawl. And that ejaculate could have only been left there by the man that committed the murder. So, so where, so, sorry to, sorry to jump in, but where, where and when did the shawl come to light then? Because I've been, for example, looking at the list of effects that's uh, mentioned for Catherine Eddowes, the, clo- the clothes there. she was wearing. So, yeah, it's not in there. So, so how do you link I it to shawl, that death? Of course, good question, my Quentin. Thank you for asking. What it is is um, Sergeant Acting Sergeant Amos Simpson, that was actually on duty in my square that night for Finian duties. So I always naturally assumed that every single police officer in Whitechapel at the time was was uh, on patrol to try and find the murderer. But in fact, Mitre Square, um, I don't know if you're aware that the IRA bombed um, Scotland Yard a few years before. Right. And that they found, they found the bombs in one of the houses in Mitre Square. Okay. So Amos Simpson was on duty. He was called Finian duties. So it's his responsibility to see if any of the Irish were actually frequented, frequenting Mitre Square. He just happened across uh, the body of Catherine Eddowes uh, about the same time as P.C. Watkins, so I'm led to believe. Mm-hmm. He asked if he could take the shawl, because then they just used to burn all the They just used to burn everything. There's no evidence left. They used to burn it, wash down the, murder, the blood from the murder scene and just get on with day-to-day life. That's how it was back then. So he asked if he could take the shawl um, home with him, because it's a huge piece of silk and his wife was a seamstress. And that's how the shawl got from the murder scene into Amos Simpson's possession. So, so just to jump in, this was a shawl that was yeah. covered in the innards of uh, Catherine Eddowes. You've got it in one. You've got it in one. So what happened was, when Amos Simpson took it back for his wife, thinking, well, we'll just wash it, his wife, um, how can I put this? She wasn't, I can't even put it in a, in a, a better way, but I can just say she wasn't pleased at all. She freaked out and cut all of the main parts of that 
surgery placed the human organ and the other side of the shawl, which is covered in arterial blood spatter, they wrapped her up and they gave it to their niece Eliza. It was her great-grandson, um, a guy called David Melville Hayes, who I bought it from. But the thing is now, that when I say it's all academic, the fact is that we've scientifically placed that shawl at that murder scene. What I'm concerned about is that it doesn't sound plausible to my lay ear, and I'm no ripperologist, but I can't quite imagine taking a, an object like that home as a gift to your wife. Yeah, well, I don't know. Yeah, to be honest with you, I agree with you, but I don't know the mindset of Amos. Only he knows what he was, what was going through his mind at the time. I don't know if you were aware that in about 1891 shawl, a woman tried to sell that shawl in the Cheshire Cheese. And it just so happens that David Melville Hayes' grandfather worked in the Cheshire Cheese back then. If you read, it's all in the book, but to be mm. fair. Mm. If you'll find that it's linked to the shawl was actually tried to be sold. Um, and again, we put that in the uh, in my book um, because we found it very significant that we can link David Melville Hayes' grandfather all the way back then and um, trying to sell the shawl in 1891. I can make that connection without too much trouble. I can imagine David Melville Hayes' grandfather buying this shawl, but uh, the, the bit before no, that no, probably... The, the, the bit before that's he difficult to prove, isn't it? Well, the thing is, difficult to prove. That's a very good question, because I always thought it and the fact that it was only purported to be taken from the murder scene. You've got to remember that the shawl, actually the evidence on the shawl, is the exact MO of the murder of Catherine Eddowes. So that shawl was at that scene, and we proved that scientifically, whether or not Amos Simpson took it before it was taken, um, before it was catalogued, or not. So it seems to be a bit of a semantic debate whether or not the shawl was there or not, or Amos Simpson took it before and um, it was all catalogued. The fact is now, it came through Amos, Amos Simpson's family, that's his great-great-grandnephew, and the blood on there, we actually matched it to Catherine Eddowes and placed it at the scene at the time. Based on the DNA analysis. Yeah. And the thing is, it, the thing is, that this human body part's been placed on that shawl, and the blood from that matched Catherineros. The arterial blood spatter, we've DNA matched that blood spatter with the descendants of Catherineros. So with Catherineros blood on there, and you know, it's, it's not a case of when we say arterial blood spatter in the form of slashing. And that's covered in the sh on the shawl, so so that's really where we are with that. Okay, so um, this is probably the thing that I know that, that was most striking to me when I was looking at uh, some of the images connected with uh, the interview we'd done. I, I should say as well, we made contact because your PR company approached yeah. me and were interested yeah. in seeing whether we should do an interview. I don't normally go for kind of Jack the Rippery type stuff. I think I mentioned in the interview that I, I tend to be a bit yeah. of a sceptic about all that stuff. So I was looking at some of the pictures, and one of the, and it's a really cool picture, is of you and, you both look like beekeepers, you and the doctor are all uh, done oh, up in, <laughs> in lab wear. Yeah. And you're, that's, uh, that's Dr. Yari Lohalainen and Dr. Fajos Mail there, yeah. Oh, that's the two, oh, that's both of them. Okay, so they're, they're scientists, yeah. 
So they're bend- they're in- they're obviously in a lab and they're bending over the shawl in uh, sort of uh, sanitary conditions to make sure that there's no uh, contamination of any sort. And then I was then I saw another picture of you holding. This was in a, a news story, and I, I saw a picture of you holding up the shawl um, for the yeah, photographer. Did, did and you it, see where I, yeah, and right. now, I was in, uh, let, let me yeah, let me just go because in in that picture you were um, there was no kind of uh, protection protective clothing. You were just holding it up with your with your bare hands. And I, I started. I, I started thinking about that, and um, so I, I looked at a few articles. And, and what I discovered, it just took a click or two on, on Google to discover an independent article from this year that was very worried about contamination of the shawl. And in particular, one of the things that was said in relation to that article, in which a couple yeah. of doctors and professors and Knights of the Realm, actually one of them, have said that there's been an error in the DNA testing, uh, which might be a separate issue that we'll, that we'll come to. But w- one of the comments was that Catherine Eddowes' descendants in more recent years have been in contact with the shawl uh, before this DNA testing was done. Yeah, very, very much so. Yeah, I mean, it... allow me, to, allow me to respond to that. Mm, sure. Okay. The, the man that actually put the statement to say that the Edo's family had been in contact with the shawl is a man that runs the tours, and in fact, the the Edo's family didn't even go to the conference that that shawl was shown. So we got. So the independent report there is completely misleading in every single way. So it was actually independence the day after, a couple of days after this story, our story broke. A tour operator completely lied about the fact that the shore was in the conference where the Edwards family were. It wasn't. It was in a completely different conference. So no, none of the Edwards family members had come in contact with that shore. So I'd like to clear that up first. Sure. The, the, the story I'm just just for, in case a listener wants to reference this, the, the story I'm looking at here, um, I've got the date wrong. It's Steve Connor, science editor, uh, Independent, Sunday, nineteenth October, twenty fourteen. Yeah, I'd like to. Yes, and I'd like to answer, respond very much to that as well. Okay. So what we did is Yori is investigating that that comment there, but what is very sort of significant is we've taken that out of the paperback. Because what that, that, sci- that scientific reporter has done and the independence has done is actually obfuscated the truth, which is we already, and it's in that book, book in a, round about that same page, saying we already have the full hacker-type DNA match between Catherine Eddowes and her great-great-great-granddaughter. What, what we were told to do is put some colour in into the book to give an idea of just how rare this is. So we did. Yori redid the test just after that re- report and still came out with the same figure. But what we did do is we waited till the paperback and it's, all of that is taken out of the paperback. So just for those who might not be familiar with what the suggestion was here, as I understand it, and this is in very lay terms, uh, the DNA match going on here, there was the allegation from Professor Walter Parson of the Institute of Legal Medicine in Innsbruck and a Professor Jeffries, they both said that your doctor has given the wrong number for a test. It should have been a test 315, uh, 314 instead of 315. And the practical consequence of that, they're saying, is that rather than narrowing the uh, number of people whose DNA it could be down to a, quite a small number, actually, they say that it could be like 96% of the population could be a match for that. And my point of that is, is we investigated that and if there's a problem with the software we will answer that in time 
what I'm more in- concerned with that what they did is highlight that in fact that we did actually get the 100% DNA hackertype match between the murder victim Catherine Eddowes and a direct female descendant's great, great, great granddaughter. So we didn't even need to put that point in the book, but we were told to give some colour to give an idea of how rare this is, whether it's a software error, because it certainly wasn't Dr. Yori local Iron's error, and whether it's a software error or not. Yori did rerun the test and still came out with what we put in the, in the hardback. So really what these two scientists did in with the independence was to try and still perpetuate the myth and completely ignore the fact that we did get a DNA match 100% between the murder victim and a descendant that gave us her DNA. Mm-hmm. And, and what, about, what, what about the DNA of, uh, of, of Kuzminski? Yes. So we had to get the... the He's buried in Eastham Cemetery and they would not allow us to exhume him. So in order that we can get DNA from the pulp in his tooth, which is what we need. Um, so we need the, the very next best thing, which we managed to find his sister's great, great, great granddaughter. And Yori did the work that way. And that's where we got the 100% haplotype match with that. Now let me let me understand, because if, if I've got this right, that means that yeah. the uh, the DNA proves that the semen there, the ejaculate on the shawl, is a connection with the with the sister, is a genetic connection with the sister. That's right, through her great-great-great-granddaughter, yes. 100%. But does that... It sounds to me like that doesn't prove that Aaron Kosminski... that it's his DNA. Well, that's, that's a very good point, that, Quentin, but are you a forensic scientist? No, I'm just trying to, uh, to, to pick my oh, way through it. There you go. If you, then if you were a forensic sci- a scientist, then that comment you've just made, you'd probably think twice about. Well, uh, not being a forensic scientist, can you explain why I'd think twice? Well, yeah. Well, the thing is, if you, you know what, that's actually a question for Yari to answer. But he said to me, you can still get the haplotype match through the mitochondrial DNA from his sister. And if you can get that, if you can get a, fe- a direct female descendant you could do the same test as we did with Ka- with Catherine and her descendants. And he did, and we got a 100% match. So that's how we can conclusively say it was Aaron Kosminski's semen on that shore. Because uh, the, the reason I'm asking is, for example, I was looking at the pictures on your... Actually, there was a phrase on your website, let me have a look. OK, it's, this is below a picture of Kosminski's sister, Matilda. And yes. uh, there's some pictures of the family, and there's Isaac wearing a smart top hat and a three-piece suit. Um, and it's, yeah. and this is this is quoting from your website. It says, Mr. Edwards, who has started a company giving tours of the real Rippers Whitechapel, says, eyewitness yeah. Israel Schwartz described a man between five foot five inches and five foot seven inches, broad shouldered, dark haired, with a moustache and foreign. <laughs> the photograph of Kosminski's brother Isaac fits that description. His picture and that of his sister take us a step closer to knowing what the face of the Ripper looked like. And so my mind naturally was thinking, well, if this has come down through the that the DNA proves that it's a relation of the sister. Um, yeah. If we're looking at the DNA on the shawl, as opposed to yeah. circumstantial evidence, I mean, it could equally have been yeah. uh, Isaac uh, Kosminski, couldn't it? Um, it could have been Isaac Kosminski. If, if it's Isaac Kosminski, who's called Isaac Abrams, then by then he'd be a deranged serial killer. So he certainly wouldn't be sitting in a chair looking quite calm. 
Uh, that's that's talking about the photograph, but I'm talking about the DNA. Is there is there any DNA reason why the DNA couldn't oh, yes, theoretically no, have belonged yes, to him? Yes, yes, that's a good question. Um, and we've got a, we've got an eyewitness here as well who who says that they've seen that person who who matches, as it says on your website, it matches uh, the brother Isaac. Yeah, um, so you've also got a, an eyewitness here, Israel Schwartz, who's uh, who, who has seen the Ripper, and uh, it says on your website that Isaac's uh, that Kosminski's brother Isaac fits the description. So it sounds like, in terms of DNA, uh, he fits. Good, in terms uh, of an eyewitness, he fits. Yeah. Okay. So Israel Schwartz identified Kosminski as the man attacking Elizabeth Stride, and not. Abrams, because Isaac wasn't called Isaac Kosminski when he came over to England, he was called Isaac Abrams. If you look at the police reports, you'll see that Kosminski was the suspect and not Abrams. But we've drifted back onto circumstantial stuff here. I'm, I'm really staying with the DNA. Is there is there any reason in terms of the DNA why that why this couldn't be true? I mean, there, as you say, I'm no expert, but what I was given to understand, I looked a little bit into, you know, I've done like a 10-second primer in uh, mitochondrial yeah. DNA testing, and yeah. it looks as though um, it, what the DNA test seems to have proved is that there's a connection with the, the sister, with Matilda Kosminski. I see, where you're, I see where you're coming from, but yes, okay, so a simple answer to these questions are, uh, Isaac and Wolf Abrams were both brothers of Aaron Kosminski. It was Aaron Kosminski that was incarcerated in the lunatic asylum, and not Isaac and Wolf. Now, if you look at serial killers, and if you actually study the subject, you'll find that they don't stop. Or if they do stop, there'll be a very big reason, um, but they do not stop forever. They actually escalate, and by the time he murdered uh, Mary St. Helen, on the night of the 8th of November going into the 9th, it, it definitely would not have just completely vanished into thin air, which is... Um, why we know it was Aaron Kosminski and not his two brothers. So there's the answer to that. That's my answer to your question, mm -hmm. if you like. On, on, on that... could, you, you, you could, so if you're saying, yeah, Isaac, Isaac Abrams was Jack the Ripper, or Wolf Abrams was Jack the Ripper, why did they go on with their, their normal day-to-day -day lives after the murders? Well, let me broaden. Let me let me broaden. Let me broaden my question uh, out there because I'm I'm not suggesting uh, specifically that uh, that Isaac uh, was. I'm saying perhaps he could have been. But my understanding of this uh, of this mitochondrial DNA testing would suggest that anyone of of quite a wide number of genetic relatives to Matilda Kosminski could have been uh, could have been Jack the Ripper. I'm surprised that you say. Uh, I'm surprised you use the word semantic. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
I hope Spinsky was identified as Jack the Ripper, and yet I can't see why we're floating off into saying that his brother a- a- um, Isaac Abrams was Jack the Ripper. Uh, I'm not. I'm. I'm questioning whether the DNA evidence specifically pinpoints this one person, or whether it, it doesn't suggest that there are, are a range of people related to Matilda Kosminski yeah. who who could be responsible be, for the me, DNA trace on the shore. Yeah. To be to be fair to me, Quentin, I think if you read the book, it says very very clearly, I'm a non-scientist. So you're ask, asking a scientific question, a forensic scientific question, to a person that's not a forensic scientist. And I think really you should target that to Yari. Mm-hmm. And he could give you the answer to that and not me. Um, okay. Well, look, I've got one more question. And I, I'm, um, I'm a bit, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you. I'll just be straight with you. I'm a bit nervous about asking the question because it's not well, something that... Can I, uh, can I just take you back to one point? Yeah. There? You said you, you saw a picture of me holding up the shawl. Yeah. Interesting. If you, if you have a look at that picture, you can see where I was holding that shawl. And what is misleading by that picture as well is the fact that I wasn't very close. Um, so I'm sorry, what, the newspaper. Sorry, what do you mean not well, very you, close? Okay, so you've, you've got a picture of me, and it was actually on a, it was a clean surface, holding a shawl with no gloves on two specific, very small corners of that shawl. So that's where my evidence, so that's where my DNA is. What you need to know is as well is I've given, um, I, I'm test, I had my DNA tested. So with me touching that shawl, I'm not contaminating that shawl because if we do any further testing, my DNA has already been given to eliminate me from any of the samples that we take. So that's why it was, it's okay for me to hold that shawl without any gloves, albeit that I'm holding it on two very, very small spots. Uh-huh. And if you look at that picture, you'll see very clearly. And you, you, you thereby... So I want to clarify a question that you asked me a bit further that we didn't answer. Good. And thereby, you're definitely not Jack the Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? We can it's rule you out. So many, pe- so many people call me Jack. It's phenomenal, really. You, no, I'm not Jack the Ripper. You go by Jack the Ripper on uh, Twitter. Yeah, because, you know, as I keep saying, Jack the Ripper is just a name given to um, a serial killer that obfuscates the fact that a serial killer went out there and the name Jack the Ripper was only on a, uh, a letter called the Dear Boss Letter uh, that was written by a journalist in the first place. So Jack the Ripper, in reality, doesn't actually exist. The serial killer, Aaron Kosminski, certainly did exist. So I've got one more question, and um, I, I don't know how to approach this question. That's that's the truth. Um, okay. So we, we talked on the tour, uh, and I told you I came in as a sceptic, and I've, I've talked to lots of people in the East End who've been uh, around there for a lot of their working lives, and they generally regard Jack the Ripper tours with some distaste. And I got the impression pretty clearly from what you said that you also regard the commercialism of it with some distaste. And we finished up at Mitre Square looking at pictures of Catherine Eddowes' yeah. body in, yeah. in a terrible, terrible state with uh, pieces butchered from it. And... Yeah. And I was genuinely uh, emotionally connected with... Of co- how could you not be? You know, if you're a, a normal person, you'd be terribly upset by that picture. And, um, I agree with you. So after our interview, I'm going through some of the articles of, about your book and uh, just learning what I can to see if there are answers to questions like the, the Michaelmas daisies and, and things like that. And one yeah. of the commenters mentioned a shop 
and so I, I went and looked uh, to see if there was a, a shop, and indeed you've got an, an online shop, and yeah. and I'm looking at some of the stuff, some of the stuff you've got on sale there, and it's it's got Jack, yeah. everything's got a Jack the Ripper logo on it. You can get like it a has, like yeah. a Jack the Ripper piggy bank for seven ninety nine, yeah. or a Jack the Ripper yo yo for one pound fifty, um, yeah. a Jack the Ripper milk chocolate bar for three pound forty nine. Um, and and that seems. I mean, I can't get away from the, the idea that that seems really exploitative. Well, the thing is, the name, as I've said just before, the name Jack the Ripper is a, is like a, a the name Jack the Ripper is a name that has really shouldn't have any link to a serial killer. So um, that murdered and butchered these five women. The name Jack the Ripper. If you look at all the tools, it's comic. It's actually not a true name for, it's a myth, if you like, the name Jack the Ripper. Because the name Jack the Ripper isn't and shouldn't be really anything to do with these five murders. And what I wanted to do is highlight the fact that, look how ridiculous this actually is. So, yeah, you can go and buy Jack the Ripper merchandise like you can off every of these other, other sites. And that's what I wanted to point out, that this is just not real, just as Sherlock Holmes isn't real. So you're just doing what they're doing? For that, yeah, certainly, yeah. But only on that, not with the tours. Like I told you on my tours, I talk about the real story, the true facts of the case. And I actually, at the very end of my tours, say the name of a legend, Jack the Ripper, has nothing to do whatsoever with the serial killer that butchered these poor women in East End in the autumn of 1888, and I very, very clearly point that out. So you made these discoveries, these DNA discoveries, last year, if I've understood it correctly. You bought the shawl in about 2007. It's over over the last four years. Over the last four years. So um, when when did you open the shop? Oh, um, I opened that uh, May last year, and we closed it down in December. Because you know what, it was a case of, well, we had the, it was like a pop-up shop for the fair just for six months. And what we did was we put it right on all the tourist routes so all the tourists could see, not just my shop, because I don't know if you were, the shop was there virtually opposite a hairdresser's called Jack the Clipper. What do you think of that? Well, again, it's um, the name Jack the Ripper is a, a myth and a legend that clouds the fact that a serial killer went round butchering women in Whitechapel in 1888. So you're and not... If I have my way, I'd, I'd much prefer to let the world know the true story, which is why I do, which is why I'm adamant about doing my tours, because on my tours, I don't sensationalise Jack the Ripper. I actually put the name Jack the Ripper in the place it should rightly be, which is that of fiction. Is there is there any concern in your mind? And I'm thinking of the of the items there on the shot, and I'm thinking of your Twitter logo with the blood splatter behind. Do you think there's a risk that people might uh, not understand the subtlety of that distinction? There's no. I don't think there's any blood splatter at all anywhere on any of my logos. If you have a look properly. Oh, I'm looking at London. T- uh, maybe maybe we've got the wrong one here. Let me maybe let yeah, me look. Mine, mine hasn't got blood splatter anywhere on it. It hasn't got a red background. It says uh, it seems to be your Twitter feed, and it says uh, a ripper tour for London. Oh, that's uh, oh, well, that's a very good point, that Quentin. If you find that 
at all. That's wax. It's like a wax seal uh-huh. that they used to used to seal envelopes with. That's not blood at all. Uh-huh. It's basically a wax seal to say, look, we <laughs> we solved the case, sort of closed, sealed. It's not blood at all. Uh-huh. And um, the merchandise online, I guess, um, is that is that now not available? No. Okay. I'm looking at a live web page that seems to suggest it is, which is why I brought, yeah. uh, why I brought well, that up. Well, the thing is, is it's people who want to buy it, um, we've, we don't push that at all. But they could if they wanted to. To be honest, no. I think we should take that off. That's been there just since since the beginning. Um, okay. I, I, think I've, I think I've found my way through this. Um, I appreciate you taking the extra time. I must admit, I I had some concerns, uh, particularly like I say, I really didn't know how to approach that last bit, and I'm I'm grateful it, it's, it's to really, you for talking about it that. It really is the name Jack the Ripper is a myth. It's a bit like Cracker and Frankenstein, and it's very much like Sherlock Holmes. This myth does not exist. It's a fictitious character, which is what these talks thrive on. My sole aim is to make sure that that's highlighted. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.